Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. I felt that it could just round out my education. It could make me feel even more competent or maybe I could learn new dishes, but it began to really enter my clinical world when I finished school. Take a deep breath and say, is there one thing today that I can do differently? Because, you know, blaming ourselves and feeling badly doesn't help. It began to be a method of explaining the nutritional value, but then following it up with an easy recipe to share with someone who was not feeling great and who was not feeling well emotionally and how were they able to feel better. And the research around the gut microbiome has been going on and I began to really investigate the ingredients in foods. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show, we have Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Uma is a Harvard nutritional psychiatrist. Say that three times fast. And man, is this a great freaking episode. Dr. Uma is the first, the first nutritional psychiatrist. So what does that mean? That means instead of only having drugs in her arsenal, she considers food as a potential alternative to drugs. What a concept. She is genius at knowing which foods are gonna help you with anxiety and stress. She's genius, she's got a new book coming out. We're gonna link all of that up in the show notes, but you are going to love this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Uma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate the invitation to talk with you. Of course. I am super excited to have you here today because we are right now, as you well know, living in a world that is stressful and filled with panic. And every day it seems to be getting worse. And your book could not be a more perfectly timed book to help people mitigate these challenges through food, which is often overlooked. So I'm super excited that you're here. And again, welcome. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to hear that feedback about the book. It wasn't planned that way. So I'm especially delighted that it can be useful during this otherwise difficult time. You would have been quite the clairvoyant if you planned that one. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Okay, so I want to take you back to Durban, South Africa. You remember that place? Mm-hmm. I do. And I want to take you back to perhaps the smells of grandma's South Indian kitchen. Would you walk me through mm-hmm. what that time in your life felt like for you? It was actually a really special time, Rob, as I'm sure you gauged from some parts of the book. Full of love, family, nurturance, good food, picking vegetables from the garden with my grandmother. And I didn't, you know, I didn't go to preschool. I spent the time with my grandmother while my mother was in medical school. And what I really learned from her was not only the wisdom of who she was, but also just observing her cook and the love and integration of spices into the food. So it was an extremely important and formative time in my life because the extended family was also present. And I come from a very large family of medical doctors in South Africa and in Durban from where I was born. But also we had a few Ayurvedic practitioners as well. So it was a good combination of understanding that mind-body experience. So it was not only a special time, I felt like it really led to my integrating my belief system in the work that I now do. I remember it very fondly. You mentioned that you had doctors in the family. You had this sort of beautiful mix of... Indian cuisine and being surrounded by family medical doctors. In what ways do you think that influenced the kind of work that you're doing today? I think on multiple levels. First, we loved food. So food was very much an important part of how we gathered, that the extended family spent time together. It was often around a meal and it was often with a discussion of either medicine or science or, or, or sometimes just the food. Yeah. So that was very influential. My older uncles who were probably at that time medical residents in training would play doctor with me. So I would be the little kid hanging around and they'd be <laughs> playing doctor. I'm sure that must have influenced me in some way as well. But I think that all of that just came together in a particular way and formed the basis of how I thought about health and I thought about the importance of food, not just from the emotional aspect, but from the mind-body integrated method of sort of thinking. And when I began to have the power of a prescription pad in medical school and beyond, I realized that that was a very powerful tool. And learning about psychotropic medications and psychopharmacology and SSRIs and all the medications that psychiatrists generally prescribe, I really felt a responsibility to offer my patients more than just the prescription, not because they don't work. In fact, they've worked and saved the lives of many of my patients. But it was also that if they had side effects, as I was learning, that the individual really needed more tools in their toolkit. And that's where my my background and just thinking about medical care in a holistic way was very important to me. And I would ask things like, well, are you walking? Are you, you know, if someone is severely depressed, I would talk to them about movement, not say, well, you've got to get in this number of minutes of exercise, but you know, what can you do to get yourself moving? Can you be eating differently? Can you maybe prepare some meals at home instead of getting fast food? because these are the things that can help you while you're on the medication. That began to be part of the language I was using, and that led to my studying other things as well. Okay, I'm starting to see how all these pieces come together, because I know the punchline in your story. So we're going we're, we're gonna to slowly take a ride there. Following in, mm-hmm. let's say, your family's footsteps, you also mm-hmm. decided to become a doctor as well. And 
He couldn't leave that alone. You had to marry one too. So now your husband, Srini, gets awarded a, who's also a doctor, gets awarded a fellowship to Harvard. And the two of you guys go from <laughs> South Africa all the way across the globe to Boston, um, which I'm mm-hmm. sure was quite the culture shock for you. But could you tell us how yes. Julia Childs entered your life at that time and maybe even sort of color it with what the movie Julia and Julia meant to you? Absolutely. Julia Child appeared on public television because in that very big move, we were very young and I don't think there was much money that I recall, but certainly not in fellowship in those years of training. But, you know, public television was what you had. And so while studying at different phases, I would watch Julia Child on television. The interesting thing that I omitted, you may know, is that I didn't cook growing up because there were all these wonderful cooks in the kitchen, right? So my mom, who knew that I loved science, taught me how to bake because measuring really appealed to me. And I did a lot of baking as a child with supervision, but I didn't cook. However, I was always around food. So my actual cooking journey began later in life, not just for a need, but I found that it became a mindful and important creative space for me. And that's where Julia comes into the picture because I gained that kind of confidence from watching her, you know, flip that omelet and flip it back over. And those episodes of The French Chef that were not only entertaining, but she was very human. And she had this delightful air to her that made you feel, especially as a young cook, you know, I can I can try to do this. I can try to cook that. And I would email my mom and get recipes and, and try it out that way. And it became a very important part of how I de-stressed and how I enjoyed my day just by cooking up different things, having some failures, you know, retrying a dish and experimenting in that way. And it became something that was very important to me. When I realized that Julia Child went to culinary school later in life and read more about her history and started to work through her cookbooks, I realized that if she could do it later in life, you know, why not me? So I think I should go to culinary school. After certain iterations, it did. And that was for me was really purely a passion project. It was linked to how I felt about her. She was a patron of my school. And I felt that it could just round out my education. It could make me feel even more competent or maybe I could learn new dishes, but it began to really enter my clinical world when I finished school and began to be a method of explaining the nutritional value, but then following it up with an easy recipe to share with someone who was not feeling great and who was not feeling well emotionally and how were they able to feel better. And the research around the gut microbiome has been going on. And I began to really investigate the ingredients in foods, nutrients, the spices, and all of that. How much of that time of your life, looking back now, did you feel like you were guided? In other words, you were in a raft on the river and it was just taking you? Or how much of it was conscious thought, I will integrate this food into my practice. In other words, it's a very interesting story to me because there is a path that professionals will go down, particularly physicians. And they, you know, they graduate, they, they open a practice and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe go on to certain degrees or advanced, mm-hmm. you know, board credentialing, et cetera, but they have a path. You had such a major interruption that it almost seems like this divine intervention sort of thing. Well, what's your thoughts on that? And which part was, in, in your opinion, was a major interruption? So I understand the context. 
That's okay. The major interruption for me would be the cooking part because, you know, <laughs> you graduate, you've got your degree, you're a yep. doctor. I hang right. a shingle, <laughs> I make some money and I start the practice. <laughs> and you I, said, no, no, Julia Childs. So I'm, I'm wondering like how much of that, how much of it was conscious and how much right. of it was just happening to you? So I was raised Hindu, and I do think that the way in which my grandmother and my, even my mother up until today will share either positive or negative experiences, they have a great way, which in psychiatry we call reframing things. And they'll say, well, you know, this was meant to happen, and, you know, this is all good, and even if it's a bad event. But I think that's a part of my DNA. You know, it's just how I was raised. And so, absolutely, there was a certain thinking back. There was a real flow to this that I wasn't in control of. So when I first watched Julia Childs on television, I didn't think, oh, I should go to culinary school. I just learned how to cook. But I think that the turning point came when I traveled. I, I went and uh, accompanied my husband on a business trip to Paris. And I was able to take a week of vacation time. And I thought, well, what, what should I do? Because he's going to be busy. And I decided to spend one component of my time, and I, I did go back a few times, at the Cordon Bleu in Paris, which was another connection to Julia Child, because she studied at the original school in Paris. I think that the experience really shifted me. I felt now I have to do something about this. Now this is not just admiring Julia Child and following her career. This is more. And I returned. I spent some time at the Culinary Institute of America at Hyde Park. And I realized that I couldn't move my life so far away. I was still based in Boston. So it had to be something that I could achieve while working. And that's when I found a local school that I loved and graduated from. And that was how it came together. But there was a certain flow to it that I wasn't in control of that really was about following my spirit and the love for what I was doing without an end plan or coming together in a book or in a career in a certain way. And I, I do, when I think back, I, I really appreciate that it happened that way. Yeah, the reason why I'm making a point of this is many of the people listening to this show you know, they get these whispers or ideas for things that they want to do, but it doesn't seem to make sense to them when they're on this path. You know, I've, I've become a CPA, I've become a lawyer, but there's a seed of something that's in the air that's guiding you. I want to go here, but it doesn't make sense. And I love the fact that you listen to it. So I wanted to make sure that people heard that. You went on to complete Harvard's Longwood Psychiatry program, and you also completed a fellowship in psychosocial oncology. I could barely say it. What <laughs> is psychosocial oncology? So a uh, great question, because at the time that I studied and went to that fellowship, it was a newer area of uh, mental health, and it's now versioned into a whole, uh, really wonderful and whole new field. But I loved consultation liaison psychiatry, which is working at the interface of medical care, but as a psychiatrist, because I was always comfortable with that part of myself. And this opportunity arose. It was a new fellowship and it really was administering really mental health counseling, mental health care to the family or patients suffering with cancer. And 
the opportunity was available. It was a newer fellowship. I loved the work and I applied for it. And it ended up being a really very important part of my life. I think that it was meaningful. It had so many components. It, it really is working directly with sometimes family members of a person who's terminally ill or a newly diagnosed or in a phase of treatment where a child or parent or a, a spouse may be struggling with the diagnosis themselves. Plus, it could also involve family work and or working with the patient themselves and sometimes prescribing medications if they were struggling immensely with their mental well-being through treatment because we know that their state of mind, feeling emotionally sound is a very important part of treatment as well. So it ended up being a really cool part of my work before I became an attending, so. It's interesting, a million questions on that, but I have so much to cover with you that we're gonna have to just keep it popping. (laughs) I can go down a a whole Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole there. (laughs) I wanna talk a little bit about being a fourth generation Indian um, whose family places education as such a priority. I've noticed that there are certain Mm -hmm. cultures, Indians Mm -hmm. being one of them, where, you know, if you're not a doctor, they're, they're going to take the frying pan out and they're going to hit you over the head. Like you're going to be a doctor. What is that about within the culture? So, you know, being fourth generation South African, I think we're on, we're, on, we're immigrants to South Africa, but you're originally South Indian. That just happens to be the part of India where my family is from. But I think that Immigrant cultures really do hold on to a certain intensity of their culture to maintain their roots. And what I would say is that in South Africa, what many people don't realize is growing up, there wasn't a perception of color and tone. It was being black or being white. And if you were Indian, you were considered black. So your Mm. disadvantages or your experience of apartheid were pretty traumatic. And I think that, you know, I think it's something you use a lot of mental fortitude and resilience to overcome. And, you know, when you have the opportunity to embrace the educational opportunities in another country, many people take that. But in terms of the culture itself, I think there's a lot of emphasis on education because it is seen as a way to better oneself. So our forefathers really were brought over, even if they were educated, because my great-grandmother on one side of my family was a midwife. So she was brought over to be of use to the community community by ship from India with her children. But her siblings had to work in the sugarcane fields, even if they came over being teachers or being educated. So it was seen as a way to stabilize the culture and to improve oneself through education. So if you did something that if you went to school, if you became a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it is that they considered important, it was a way to help the family take care of things, have a stable profession, bring honor to the family. And I think that that has been very ingrained in the culture. That being said, you know, I was very blessed to have very cool parents. They were incredibly forward thinking for their time. My mother was the only woman in her medical school class, as was her older sister years before her. She did everything. She had a a family while she went to medical school. That's why I used to hang out with my grandparents during the day. That was how I grew up. I grew up seeing parents that worked really hard to achieve things. And that was definitely ingrained. I think had an impact on uh, when I was given the opportunity to study in Boston and to live here. I saw it as a positive challenge. You know, yes, we arrived in freezing cold weather without 
even our warmest clothing was not warm enough. So we went through all of those challenges and more. But you know, you 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 decided at a certain point that it's really worth it. And I think Boston will always be home, no matter where we yeah. are in the world. It's interesting. I did uh, New Year's Eve two years ago in South Africa. In God, I can't remember the name of the the area, but the town I was in was called Camps Bay. Yes, and Cape Town. Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Just My, outside of Cape Town. Just yes. outside of Cape Town. And it it's was- a beautiful part of the world. It was amazing. It was really it, amazing. But even still, town. I saw you were sort of referring, I believe, to those F.W. de Klerk years. And, you know, even still, yes. it's been many, many years since then, clearly, it still feels sort of separated to me when I was there. I noticed a big, you know, you were either in this group or you were in that group. I think that uh, those types of tensions are worldwide. I'm interested that you picked up on that because I I think it's true. Even when we travel back to visit family, I think that there's a tone, there's the sense of that. Many roads have been renamed and centers have been renamed. But it's you, you can't erase what's there. And certainly for those of us who grew up, it is there. Even though we have family and loved ones there, you know, visiting is great and spending time in it. It's an amazingly beautiful country. All right. Before we go into the impact of food in your book, there's one lingering question I have in my head. And you spent many, many years in a classroom setting to become a physician. And you also spent a considerable amount of time in culinary school, Cordon Bleu in Paris, as you've mentioned, CIA, Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. These are the best of the best. I mean, when you do things, you know, you do Harvard and CIA and Le Cordon Bleu, you don't mess around. You do the best of the best. (laughs) And I'm curious to know, I, I have this vision of you sitting in the classroom in medical school and sitting in the classroom in culinary school. In mm-hmm. in your estimation, mm-hmm. what was the difference in how it felt to be in those two different environments? Did you feel like a student mm-hmm. in the cooking environment or did it feel more like you were part of something different? Like how did they compare, maybe compare and contrast them? You know, culinary school was more scary. Oh, um, really? Why? Know, it, it was, and yet I loved it. So it was interesting because it was one of the best experiences of my life. One of the greatest, I think, growth spurts in terms of my mind and how I developed thinking and how it allowed for my creativity to develop in a certain realm. And yet in medical school, you know, you have to do anatomical dissection and pathology and a lot of scary stuff. But there's something about being a student while working the rest of the week, managing a practice, and being in a completely new world. Culinary school is not that different from how it's reflected on television. You know, you do have some screaming chefs. You do, you are yelled at a lot for, you know, not being neat in your workspace, not taking care of things the right way. You know, they will effectively offer you feedback about the food, but you are expected to be almost militaristic in how you conduct yourself in the kitchen. I think that much of that was very good for me. And it's not just the training, it's really how you think about it. What was scary was really being in a whole new environment, something like being a new author. It's a whole new world. There's something about doing something that you've never done before that is somewhat scary. But what helped me in culinary school is I had a really great set of students with me. And it was some people who, like myself, were doing this as almost a second career. There were also people who just graduated from high school and were you know, going fresh into the culinary world. So we have 
were a great class of people. And I really immersed myself in the experience. And it was very, when I think about it, now I don't know how I went through those years of my life because the number of hours that I was working and working very hard physically and mentally are somewhat shocking to me. And, you know, I know that it was driven by passion and by that flow we spoke about because I went through it and I enjoyed it. Uh, it was really one of the best experiences I've had and I wouldn't have given it up for anything. But that's how they compared. I felt medical school was medical school. You know, I think there were some surprises and some fun things, but culinary school was different. And I was a very engaged learner. Something about having that passion, I would take my books to dinners and birthday parties and it became a joke in the family, you know, that if I had an exam, because you have exams all the time and tests all the time that, you know, I was pretty much always studying. If I had to force you to pick one, you couldn't pick two, medical school or culinary school. <laughs> Which would you choose? Uh, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I guess I would have to, in all honesty, still pick medical school. And the reason is that a lot of people cook and cook very well and they don't have to go to culinary school. I just wanted to do it to satisfy myself. And because for me, that has maybe my cultural background, but it has meaning if you actually do the training. And for me, that was important. It wasn't about other people. It was about myself. If I had only gone to medical school, I would still be able to cook. You know, maybe I wouldn't be in this career path. Yeah, yeah. it's an unfair question, but I just wanted to get your answer there. There is, you mentioned sort of that militaristic kitchen vibe that's going on there. And the only reference that I have for it is watching Anthony Bourdain on TV, you know? And I read his book, Kitchen Confidential. And it was fascinating to me, sort of like understanding that world. And there is a, there's a different breed of person that is behind the heat of that kitchen working all those hours. And it's interesting to me, the juxtaposition from medical school to that environment. It really is. That's what made this interview for me so exciting because it's usually, these interviews I do are usually pretty predictable. You know, somebody goes down a path and then they dominate their path. Yours is just has so many twists and it's great for, as an interviewer to talk about. Thank you. You're welcome. You wrote a book uh, and the book is called This Is Your Brain on Food. Was that sort of a, a hat tip to This Is Your Brain on Drugs, the commercial? Um, I, yes, it, okay. it was. Absolutely. That, that was how we okay. thought about it. And at what point did you say, I think that medicine and cooking can absolutely affect mood. And I think there's a book here. I think that instead of just, you know, these are my words, not yours, but, you know, instead of just drugging them up with all these antidepressants and more and more and more that we're giving, maybe we should examine the thing that they're doing three, four, five times a day. When did that light bulb go off for you? So interestingly, it sort of happened in reverse. As with the flow that we speak about, I had been doing this work and I was very fortunate to have good mentorship and people who were listening to what I was doing with my life, what I was studying. And one of my mentors said, well, you know, it sounds like you are putting these things together because what you're talking about to me is A, B, and C. And I said, absolutely. And gave me some guidance to talk to another mentor. And that's how I opened up my clinic. What I will say is that when I examined what I'd been doing, I had been integrating food and thinking about food. And I'm not saying I was cooking with patients or 
for handing out recipes. I'm saying that I, the knowledge of nutrition and having the conversation about what is this impacting you? How are you feeling after you do this? Understanding the gut microbiome had been going on for a while. It was a fusion of my worlds without that much planning. It was, again, following my instincts, my gut instinct, following the things that I truly loved to do. I love knowing about food. I love preparing food. And I also love mental health. I love the practice of medicine. And I primarily enjoy working with people. So putting that together as a recipe began to be what my career was about. And I feel fortunate in that way. So I wasn't thinking about a book at all. I guess people were reading my blogs on how it helped publications in a few different places. And I would get outreach from media and they'd want to interview me about like a question. And I got a call from a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and I had a nice conversation with her and I didn't think anything of it. I thought that's really cool. It'd be nice to be mentioned in an article. And that article happened to go viral. It was called Feed Your Head. It was in 2018. When that article went viral, a few things happened that led to me speaking to an agent. And the agent said, oh, of course you should write a book. But again, you know, when I interviewed with the reporter, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be an opportunity for a book. I was sort of answering questions and doing my work and running my clinic. And that's how the book came about. But when the idea landed, it really clicked in in a great way. So... I want to go higher on some psychological issues and then go maybe a little bit lower on some psychological issues and how the book may relate to those. And I'll explain the question in a second. When I hear the words chemical imbalance that people have, these are used a lot. They're bipolar. They have a chemical imbalance. I get very, very confused because every time I go off on doing some research to understand what blood test are they doing to determine that there's a chemical imbalance, I come up empty-handed and there isn't the blood test. And there isn't a report that says, oh, this is where the chemical is off. And it's a, and these are my words, so please correct me if I get this wrong. And it's up to the doctor, the psychiatrist usually, to say, well, based on what I have in front of me, my best guess is that you're likely chemically imbalanced. To my mind, as somebody who would buy your book, I am much more interested in getting a book on how food can help that then I am interested in taking a stab at where I may be chemically imbalanced. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. So, you know, I should preface this by saying that I still prescribe medications when there's a need, and I'm not one of the physicians who feels that I shouldn't be or that I'm against medications. Because in my career, Rob, medications have saved the lives of many of my patients. You know, nutrition and nutritional psychiatry can be a component of any part of your life, including if you're severely ill with a mental illness or chemical imbalance. But it may not be first line if you are actively suicidal or manic or losing touch with reality. It can still be how you eat, but you might need acute treatment for that. So that being said, one of the things that I've struggled with as a psychiatrist has been how we diagnose individuals and the criteria that we use, which are checkboxes. And in psychiatry, we don't have a tissue diagnosis. We don't have a blood test. What I was finding in my practice over many years was that 
people didn't fall into a checkbox of, of symptoms, yet they were not feeling good and they needed more solutions to how they were feeling. Then there were individuals who did start taking medication and had devastating side effects. So all of these things had been troubling me. It didn't change the way that I was practicing, but it made me look for more solutions. So you're absolutely right. We don't have a brain biopsy diagnosis. We don't have, you know, a culture. But I think that's where I felt that following my instinct just about nutrition and how it could be used based on how I was raised, based on even my grandmother talking to me about what spice I should have when I was feeling, when I had a cold, or what she would conjure up for me in the kitchen to make me feel better. All of that started to make sense. And spices are definitely a cornerstone of what I feel uh, important and often overlooked in terms of our well-being. So for me, it provided an additional solution and a stepping stone for someone who came in who was functioning, but not feeling well. And what do I mean by that? The person could get out of bed, go to work, or in current times, get onto their Zoom call, but they weren't feeling good. They were feeling blue, were somewhat anxious, not sleeping well, or had active symptoms that were being riled up of, say, a traumatic experience, or had problems with attention. But were they functioning enough that they could employ these strategies using food and nutrients to feel better. And what I found was there were certain types of individuals who did better. Mostly, I feel, based on the uniqueness of our microbiome. They can embrace certain foods, follow these plans, and feel better. If someone was more acutely ill, I would still, you know, refer them to acute care, but that didn't exclude the use of food as a treatment. In fact, one of my pet peeves is what we feed people in hospitals. That, that's a whole other story. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. If, since food is one of the most powerful drugs that we can ever imagine, and somebody is sick in a hospital and really, really needs great food, why would we give them the crap? It makes absolutely no sense. So I'm right there with you. I have a six-year-old daughter and I notice even with her that my wife or I feed her food that has dyes in it. I can see a hyperactivity that happens almost instantly. It's almost instant. We pull it out and she goes right back to normal. If it slips by like a Halloween kind of thing, all of a sudden we're like, whoa, my wife is like, (laughs) she's like, dude, you better get that chocolate away. You're you're killing that kid. Okay, now I want to go low, I'm calling low, and that is, (laughs) let's say that there isn't a chemical imbalance, and let's say we know what's going on. We are in a pandemic. We are being forced to wear masks. We are feeling like our freedoms are being taken away. We feel like the world is coming to an end. I'm scared. I'm watching the election, and I don't know if there's going to be riots tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. And it is affecting my mood. It's affecting my sleep. It's affecting my relationship. Talk to me about what people can do right now, or maybe even what they should do right right now. Sure. It's going to be easier for me to start off with what we shouldn't do. And that's because I think this being such a stressful time, our bodies and our brain tend to want to crave those comfort foods. And this is where emotional eating comes up and that stress response, the you know extra cortisol we have going on because of the stress we're feeling. And that's where you know turning to a comfort food may end up happening. And I say comfort food because we tend to call it that, but quite often it may 
not be a healthy food. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I really don't like to demonize food ingredients, especially as a chef. I think that ingredients in the world and food all have a place. But I think for mental health, we have to be aware of things like you mentioned, colorants and dyes in food, which actually are impactful, processed and ultra processed foods. Fast foods, you know, French fries have added sugar in them. We don't taste it, but the research and development, millions of dollars are spent to make them hyper palatable. That's why you always upsize. That's why when you do upsize, you can't put it down. So those types of things become really important. Understanding food labels, you know, knowing that that sugar has close to 250 names, other names for sugar that are used on food labels. So someone might be consuming added sugars without realizing it. And the added sugars are some of what's leading to the level of insulin resistance that occurs in our medical history these days, because we're just consuming so much without realizing it. And then, you know, trans fats and um, consumption of trans fats in food have been associated with studies showing increased aggression. So when you put those things together, you realize that we may think of or use the word comfort, but they actually create a lot of discomfort in our brain and a dis- lot of discomfort and distress to our mental well-being. So as much as we are in a tough time, we have to realize that our brain very easily and very quickly gets used to the brush and the feeling of a high sugar food, a sugary donut or something that gives you that sugar rush initially. So we, we sort of have to rethink where we're at. And this is where it's not it's one of many different things. Food is going to be a path towards your mental well-being, but it's slow and steady steps. There are building blocks. It's not going to happen overnight. If I just eat blueberries today, it's going to, I'm going to have a positive impact from them, but it's not going to immediately change me that I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be in a whole different state of mind. So understanding that it's a slow and steady building up process and it's a it's sort of a pathway to your better mental health is important because the other important thing is that when you give people a checklist of 10 things and ask them to change it, they can't and they don't want to. Human psychology will tell you that, behavioral psychology will tell you that. So it's about engaging with the human being on in terms of what they can change, even if it's one or two things they can change today. That will, maybe it's giving up fast food, maybe it's switching from soda to, you know, cutting back on all of that sugar and starting to really embrace water with lots of fruit in it, or, you know, giving up a fruit juice that they think is healthy because the doctors told them to eat fruit. So, you know, that's robot orange juice, which has tons of added sugar that you don't realize and no fiber, maybe the habit that you will switch. Uh, Maybe someone listening will give up smoking, you know, whatever it is, it's what can a person do right now that they can change? Of, I would just challenge a habit that we have picked up unintentionally because of all of the stress and difficulties that we have because, you know, blaming ourselves and feeling badly doesn't help either. It doesn't help our mental well-being. So I just say, take a step back, take a deep breath and say, is there one thing today that I can do differently? And then of the things I can start to embrace and bring into my life, there are tons of foods that you can start to eat today that will, over time, just help your gut, help heal your gut from possibly the processed foods you've been eating or the fast foods you've been eating. So, you know, simple things, eating the color of the rainbow, but there's now science behind we should do that, why we should do that. It's the antioxidants, the polyphenols. It's how they get broken down in the gut with those microbes. It's why should we eat fiber? You know, we worry about protein in the United States. We're actually lacking fiber. 
nutrient that we really need. And we can only get that from, you know, fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains. So embrace those, you know, add those to your diet, add more sides of vegetables, add those salads in. Why do I say eat leafy greens? Because the folates have been shown in, in research to interact with certain bacteria in the microbiome that actually improve mood. So, you know, I'm not just saying eat a salad because I think, oh, you know, your greens are good for you. They are good for you, but there's now science that backs that up. So it's a slow and steady process. Think of one thing you can change and one healthy habit you can add in. It could even be that you start to embrace spices. And if you have a bottle of turmeric at home and you've wondered, what should I be doing with that? Add a quarter teaspoon and a pinch of black pepper to activate the curcumin in turmeric and make it more bioavailable to your body and add that to a super smoothie or a tea. Because even starting with that, it is been shown to improve mood in studies of depression. It helps anxiety. It's anti-inflammatory. It's antioxidant. So even a tiny habit like that, you know, just starting off with a little bit that you add to something could start to change how you feel over time. And if you want to have a little bit more and you want to cook with it, you can do that too. Can you give me that uh, sneaky little recipe one more time? That is turmeric with... A pinch of black pepper. So, so turmeric is like a, tea, um, a, a teaspoon of turmeric. Sure, you can have a teaspoon. You need at least a quarter teaspoon. Teaspoon and a pinch a and a pinch pin, literally black. a pinch of black pepper. So, my hack for that, Rob, is that in my container of turmeric, I actually grind in some black pepper and kind of ah. shake it up. So there's always black pepper in the turmeric, which activates the curcumin. So pepperine. When you say, what's it called? Curcumin. Curcumin? Yes. Cumin is a different spice and curcumin is the active ingredient in turmeric. Curcumin is the active ingredient of turmeric. Wow. Okay. That's a great tip because I'm going to put that in my smoothie right after I do this interview. That's perfect. Excellent. I love that. Okay. So as we wrap up, we're going to link up in the show notes, all the information, how people can find you, read your, you know, now a blog is is an Instagram post, right? You have great Instagram posts and great tips for people. You're welcome. And uh, we're going to link up how they can get the book, the audio book, and enter your world of food. But first, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you some weird questions, okay? Can it? First one sure. is... Sure. Yeah, I'm, go ahead. I just wanted to mention, I would love for people to subscribe to our website um, and follow what we do, not only on Instagram, and you can sign up at umanaidumd.com, um, and you'll get a weekly newsletter and some more information, and then follow us on social. Okay, perfect. And we'll link that URL up in the show notes as well so they can just click right on it. Um, Okay, what is on your nightstand? On my nightstand, you caught me, Rob. My phone is usually on my nightstand. No. But it's usually I've turned off my notifications. I put the face <laughs> down and I'm trying my best. See, I'm not perfect. I, I want to just say she- I'm definitely not perfect. But um, it's been so hard, especially during the pandemic with working I virtually know. to uh, do what I would usually do, which is shut it off and, and put it in, you know, in a different room. But, you know, in some ways, the beeper that we use at the hospital has been replaced by the phone. So for me, it's been harder to do that. But I do turn off notifications, put the face down and refuse to look at it after a certain time. So my phone is on my nightstand. (laughs) God is not done with you yet. 
What do people often get wrong about your work? That it's a soft science. You know, how could food make that much of a difference? I liken it to things like the mind-body work done by the Benson Henry Institute at Mass General. It took a while for people to embrace it. And to really understand it now, you know, who doesn't know about taking a yoga class and who doesn't know about the mind-body-soul connection and mindfulness is something we use in our language. And yet it was not. And I know this because, you know, I would follow his work at that time. So I feel as though it's fine for people to have that opinion. That's why uh, my editor, together with my team, we made a decision to include the many, many pages of endnotes in the books in the book. And so there's a very thick stack of endnotes if you ever want to look up the studies that we're quoting. And the other part about it is I feel that if people just were open to it, they might learn something. And I'm not trying to change someone's mind, but I am trying to help people who are interested in using food as a and nutrition as a tool to feel emotionally better. I love that. I did an interview recently. Have you uh, heard of the book uh, Blue Zones? Yes. And Dan Butner has recently been promoting someone who wrote a book unrelated to him called Growing Young. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And it's basically a woman who referenced what you just referenced, which is something like soft targets. And she said, you know, for, for living longer in life, we look at things like exercise, but we don't look at other things, the softer targets like being happily married and spending time with your children. And all of those things have an impact um, equally as well as food do. But, you know, she looked at all those different things. Okay. If you can spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh, that's a hard one because there's so many places. Um, So there's a backstory to this. One of the trips that I went on with my culinary school colleagues was a planned trip where we did a um, a tour of the culinary schools and culinary parts of France. So we went to different pastry schools. We went to the Champagne region, went to very many beautiful parts. And I would love to do sort of a follow-up of that with my colleagues because we have an immense amount of fun together. And it was an incredibly immersive experience. And we were planning to do one to Italy as well. And so if I had a month uh, of spare time, I would probably want to do that. And, and of course, have, you know, have my family come along with me. That's amazing. I just did a bucket list trip. I did four months in Florence and <laughs> it was... Wow. Everything you can imagine it would be, it like was. Yeah. I have two more questions. What one book have you reread the most? Deepak Chopra's Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. It's a small size. I always had it with me. And I always find that I glean something different when I reread it. Something about that sort of spiritual connection and simple, simple words, simple writing, but deeper meaning. That guy's got it going on, doesn't he? Uh, he has it going on. He's got on. it going on. And he, you know, he started off in Boston. I know he I'll did. I know he did. Yeah. He was the chief of staff uh, somewhere in uh, one of the hospitals, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, I believe so. I think so. Okay, last question. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or uh, actually, I'm sorry, let me, before we do that, um, last question. What one question do you want to ask me? 
So I was really curious and and was so excited that you reached out to us. But I I was very curious about how you really heard about the book because, you know, we've been struggling to be noticed in a pandemic and we've been working hard on Instagram to share the work. So I appreciate it. And I was just curious about that. Yeah. The way I heard about your work is I'm doing an anti-aging series And in the anti-aging series, I have a team of people that help me put together research and reach out to different people for for different things. And your name had popped up a few times. And I believe the connection is through a colleague, if I'm not mistaken, Tom Bilyeu. Do you know Tom Bilyeu? Yes. Okay. I spoke with him. Yes, I spoke with him and it was on his podcast. He was awesome. There you go. That's uh, that's how, uh, and he was in the food world as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, more, more than more than just a small piece, but absolutely. Yeah. We, we a, had a great discussion. A, a billion dollars worth for sure. The guy, uh, <laughs> the, the guy, I had dinner with him in LA not that long ago. He does the work of ten men. Let's put it that way. He's a powerful man. He was he was really fascinating uh, to speak to. So, well, thank you, thank you for making that connection. You are so welcome. Okay. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? You know, I'd like to ask that if you have found what we've spoken about to be interesting, I would love for you to maybe think about the book, maybe share it with someone who is not doing well. And I say this, Rob, because one of the scary statistics that came out from the CDC over the summer was that 11% of Americans considered suicide during the pandemic. That really scared me as a psychiatrist because I'm a very firm believer for my clinical work that we often get it wrong when someone is suicidal and it is often people who are very serious that don't talk about it. So I would just urge people that if they think someone is struggling and they think they might find a way in through food, even to start a discussion or share something of my work, I would ask them to just reach out and maybe help someone that way because it's the only way we can help people feel better these days. Wonderful. And we'll also link up the uh, the suicide hotline and some numbers that are related to that as well. I think yeah. it's important. Well, Dr. Uma Naidu, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you so much, Robert. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 